All right, folks, uh, we're going to get into the Word now. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. If you need a Bible, these folks walking down the uh, aisles will give you one. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to use it. If you don't have one, you're welcome to keep it. Before we stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord, uh, I wanted to kind of set this up for you. Um, Matthew chapter 3 is, is dealing with a very interesting man in Scripture. His name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist happens to be related to Jesus. He's his cousin. Uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, uh, was the aunt of Mary, who was Jesus' mother. And Elizabeth had a, was pregnant in her old age, long before or long after supposedly she could bear children. She was pregnant with, with John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, uh, Mary and Elizabeth came into contact with each other. The Bible says that the two children leapt in the womb, Jesus and John. It didn't say the fetuses. It didn't say the blob of tissue. It said the babies. It said Jesus. It said John leapt in the womb. The Bible says that, not Rob McCoy. Before you were born, I knew you. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb, Isaiah would write, which is a book that John would quote from often. Or excuse me, Matthew would quote from often, and also John the Baptist as well. So John the Baptist uh, comes on the scene in the form of Elijah. We're going to see more of this. He's going to be the one who baptizes Jesus later in this chapter, which we'll cover probably next week. John the Baptist is an interesting fellow. He, he reminds me a little bit of um, like a Duck Dynasty guy, like a Phil Robertson. He's, he's wearing camel hair, coat, or camel hair skin, which is worse than wool. He's got a leather belt, and the Scripture says that he eats locusts and honey. And you think locusts, and some people, well, those Scriptures talk about uh, carob pods. It's not carob pods. It's very clear in the text that it's locusts. And you go into the Levitical law, and you're allowed to eat bald locusts, which means no receding hairline. They have to be completely bald. <laughs> and and I've, had, I've eaten crickets in Uganda, and they're actually pretty tasty. Uh, and the way I can describe the difference between a cricket and a locust was a cricket would be like a shrimp, and a locust would be a lobster. Just a bigger tail, right? Okay, that didn't work. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, you fry them, you can dry them. Uh, and I can imagine that, you know, he had this beard and he, he dipping these things in honey. He probably had some of the legs stuck in his beard. And, he, and he's, like, he's like Jim from Taxi, just, <laughs> you know, he's a real intense guy. And, um, and, and he's coming on the scene and he's going he's gonna to make a bold, brash presentation What's interesting about John the Baptist is he is extremely political, extremely political. He is not only going to confront and call them a brood of venomous snakes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling authorities over the Jewish community, he's also going to confront Herod. And he's going to confront his wife and their immorality that he's sleeping with his brother's wife. And it's going to cost him his head because Salome is going to dance seductively, which is uh, his brother's wife's daughter, he's gonna, she's going to dance seductively and, he, and he's going to be drunk. The ruler's going to be drunk and say, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. She's going to say, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he has to deliver it so he can't lose political face in front of all these political leaders. And he does. He kills John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he comes on the scene, scholars believe that as he's out in the wilderness and it's an arid region and I've been out there, it's right in the Jordan where they believe that the tribes of Israel crossed and they put 12 stones in remembrance because John's going to point to the 12 stones 
If these stones were to cry out, and these are the stones that Josephus says were still in existence when, when John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, and he's going to be out there, and, they, and scholars believe that up to a million people gathered to him in this region would travel at great expense to themselves. And he's pe- preaching repentance to change, to turn from their sin. And I'll cover sin. Don't be insulted by the word. It'll make sense in a moment. And while he's doing this, they're realizing these, these, these political leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, travel out to the wilderness to meet him. And as he sees them coming, he, he, he says, Who warned you, you brood of vipers, you poisonous, venomous snakes? And he confronts them. And he's, he's pretty heavy on them. And he doesn't, he doesn't dial it down. And, and what ends up happening is John the Baptist has all these disciples, and they begin to dwindle, and Jesus' disciples begin to grow. Because after chapter 3, Jesus bapt, or John baptizes Jesus. And, this, and, and the voice of the Father in heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and all of a sudden, the disciples start peeling off of John and going to Jesus. And then one final thing we'll see later in the text is John's in prison. He's been put there, obviously, because of what had occurred with Salome and, and standing in opposition to the infidelity and the, the, uh, the sin of political leaders that he called to account the immorality, and they put him in prison. And while he's there, he says to the, the remaining disciples he has left, he says, go and ask Jesus if he's the Messiah or, or there's one to come. He's starting to struggle in his faith. And if any time in the history of the world that God could have talked to man, you'd think Jesus would walk the short distance to the prison, being related to him, and be able to tell John, I am the Messiah, but he doesn't. What happens is John's disciples walk to where Jesus is, They say, John wants to know if you're the Messiah. And Jesus turns and he says to the remaining disciples of John, he says, tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, and the deaf hear. Kind of cryptic. So off he walks, or off they walk. And as they're out of earshot, he turns to all the multitude and he said, of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. He said, you you, you didn't come out here to see a man in fine silken wear and the, the, the clothing of kings. He speaks of a man who has is, is lived in the Essene regions of the world and is a prophet. And, and they never hear that as they leave. And, and the disciples never make it to John in time because by the time they get to the prison, the, the head of John the Baptist has already been cut off. And you can think John, as he's getting drug up the stairs from the depths of the prison to have his head put on the, the post, and he's just saying, God, God. And then the hatchet comes down. John exhales his last breath on earth, inhales his first breath in heaven, and realizes, God, you got this. Fascinating man who stood for righteousness and made straight the crooked way to prepare the way of the Lord. And we're going to meet him today in chapter 3 of the book of Matthew. So would you please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Verse 1, in those days, meaning... By the way, in those days, there was 400 years of silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 400 years of silence. The last Old Testament prophet was Malachi, or as the Italians call him, Malachi. For Malachi. Prego. So from, from Malachi until John the Baptist, God has been silent. They've been going to the synagogue. They've been going to the temple. God isn't speaking. He's judging his people. In those days of silence of God, this is what happens. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, here's the first word, 400 years of silence, the first word God says, ready? Repent. Let that echo, repent. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible we hold. The first 39 books of, or 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about God's judgment and the law. And then starting in chapter 40, it's comfort in the presence of the Messiah. Fascinating. And what does he quote from? Isaiah 40. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers or of poisonous snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's that word again. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, as he points to the 12 stones that the tribes hundreds of years earlier had placed. And even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. There's that word again. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. By the way, some people struggle with the concept of hell. Hell is just a place where there's the absence of God, and everything that God is, hell isn't, and everything that hell is, God isn't. And uh, no one spoke more of hell in the New Testament than Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there. I wish there wasn't the doctrine of hell. I'd like to avoid it, but the reality is it's there. So let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word. It's living, it's breathing, it's sharpening a two-edged sword, and here we have a man standing by it and declaring it at a cost to his own life. And Lord, I thank you that he came to make straight the paths that were crooked, to bring the mountains low and the valleys high to make the bumpy places smooth, and to prepare the way of the Lord. And Lord, I, I know that all of us right now at this day and age in this election cycle, we are troubled, we're burdened. And I pray by your word, as it says in Isaiah 40, that you bring comfort to your people. Lord, please minister to all who are present, even folks who have no clue what all this is about. By your wisdom and your tenderness, I pray that you'd minister to every person present. We thank you for what you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. So here we are. Um, and, and, you know, I know that Brett kind of alluded to what we've been seeing in the news and, and all the heaviness of this election cycle. And, and, and as Billy pointed out, this is, this is my fourth election in two years, and I'm, I'm tired. And, and I... I I can't imagine where you all are at and how heavy it is and what we've all been going through and the trials and the struggles. And here we're looking at the national election as most contentious and caustic that we've seen in our lifetimes. And we're wondering what the outcome's going to be. And, but I, when I was in Ohio, I heard a, a United States Marine who was now an assemblyman from Missouri, uh, a lower house representative from Missouri, a young man, speak of the common cry of mankind throughout all of history. It's an underlying theme that unifies us as, as people. And it's the cry for freedom, the cry for liberty. Billy spoke of, of bondage to alcohol. 
Others know of bondage to drugs. We speak of bondage to, to slaves and bondage to the government, bondage. And we're longing for liberty. We're longing that the captives would be set, set free. Jesus came to set the captives free. And this, this underlying theme of mankind for freedom and liberty. And oftentimes we think, well, how, how does one obtain freedom? How does one obtain liberty? What are they? And, and that, that underlying theme of the foundation of our nation, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, and then we see the word liberty, and then the pursuit of virtue or the pursuit of happiness to do right. For this reason, governments were instituted among men for the preservation of those inalienable rights. That's the purpose of government. Purpose of government is to give us life, liberty, and the pursuit of virtue, of happiness. That's the purpose of government. It's the Noahic covenant. There's three forms of government spoken of the scripture. One is family, the other is church, and then there's civil government. The purpose of that government is the protection of those inalienable rights, life, liberty, which is what we long for, and that preservation of life, and then that pursuit of doing what's right. But governments do something interesting. They enact legislation, which is laws upon people. We look at those laws, and they suppress our so-called freedom. And we say, well, how can a law set us free when it suppresses us? How can a restraint make mankind free? Because our concept of freedom is the absence of restraint. Leave me alone, right? But you've heard me describe this, that the, the biblical concept of the wise restraints that make men free, how can a law make one free? It's very simple. In applying restraints, which is the word that you see continually used in the text of Matthew 3, repentance. Repentance means to turn away from one thing and embrace something else. It's to apply restraint from that world that you were helpless to walk away from and embrace a God who can deliver you from the bondage of that alcohol, from the bondage of those drugs, from the bondage of that toxic relationship, from the bondage of the abuse, from the bondage of the memories, right? From the bondage of the deception and the bondage of the lies and the bondage of the sexual immorality, you turn and you embrace the Lord. What you're doing is you're applying restraint and seeking excellence. God says, in me, you'll have the fullness of life, life and life more abundant. You apply restraint for the purpose of excellence. You say, well, how can restraints make one free? Because you have the ability to restrain yourself from those things, you can walk towards excellence. You can now fly in a realm you never had the ability to. If freedom were simply the absence of restraint, we'd all indulge our carnal sin and our carnal nature. You see, in this text, John the Baptist refers to this idea of wheat and chaff. Wheat and chaff. Wheat is, is, is the fruit of the grain. It's sustenance to the man or the woman. Chaff is a scaly outside that is worthless. It can't even be consumed by a human being. The only creature that can consume chaff is an animal and make nutrient of it. Mankind can't. We need the wheat. The chaff is for the animal. We, we are in a world now where we live for the chaff. The chaff is what the wind blows away. Let me explain to you. You came into the world naked. You'll return naked. There is no u-haul van that follows the hearse to the cemetery for all those pyramids that are are inundated with all the wealth and riches that 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 pharaoh accumulated his body is rotting in the tomb and those are deteriorating all of those riches 
You don't take anything with you. That's chaff. Your identity is not in, in what you possess on this earth. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the wheat. The wheat is relational. The wheat is people. The wheat is substance. It's your character. It's what's true. It's what's right. It's what you can stand upon. And you look at it, it's not shadows and mirrors. It's legitimate. Your life has substance. You make a difference. And that's what Angie was speaking towards, this idea of leading people because they look and they say, I see substance. I want that for my life, for my family, for my community. And then the chaff is removed. For the chaff to be removed, we have to restrain ourselves. We have to turn from those things. A perfect example, you've heard me share it. A perfect example is an is a athletic example. Here we are, Sundays is, is, is for Jesus and football this time of year. Some of you, well, I don't believe that to be, well, our family does. Anyways. <laughs> How do these quarterbacks obtain this level of excellence to enjoy football at a level that the rest of us in our Barco lounger with our pizza cannot obtain? We can't enjoy football at the level they, they, they enjoy it. The reason why is because they've applied restraints in their life and they have pursued excellence. Instead of being in front of the television or in the mall or indulging in their flesh, they're out practicing and and perfecting and obtaining a level of excellence so that they have the freedom to enjoy things at a level the rest of us who won't apply restraint don't have. Restraints, wise restraints that make men free. Repentance, turning from those things that put us in bondage to make straight the way of the Lord. To see things as true and right and to measure them according to the word of God that our lives would operate in the context for which God created us to excel. And this is the idea. And it was into this world where God had been silent for 400 years because mankind had embraced the chaff and thrown away the wheat. It was into this world of 400 years of silence after Malachi that God hadn't spoken. And guess what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees all went to to temple. They all went into into the temple of God. They were all in the synagogue and they genuflected and they worshiped and they brought their tithes and they brought their offering and they wore the outfits and they did the incense and they did the worship songs and they sang and they, they got married in the temple. And all of these religious folks come out and you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees as, as, as John points out and Matthew points out. And these were political leaders and religious leaders, interestingly enough. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Pharisees in our day and age would be the legalists that add to the scriptures things that aren't there. They push into the center of what is supposed to be the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. They put in these non-tangibles and push them into the center. Things that are not salvific. And yet they make them salvific. You, you can't be saved unless you do this. You, you, you must teach the King James Version. You, you, you must sing the old hymns. You, you must carry a very large Bible. You must wear a three-piece suit. You must pray with thee and thou. You must, you must, you must. That's not scriptural. And they add, and then it becomes burdensome. It becomes overwhelming. I'm not allowed to dance because I can't wear makeup. I'm, I'm not allowed to wear dresses that are, not me, I'm talking about women. You're in a, <laughs> and all these rules have become burdensome, and, and all of a sudden you've got all the legalism, but you have no relationship. And it's burdensome and tiring. 
And everyone walks around like this. And how are you? Praise God to see you. <laughs> inside, we're just whitewashed sepulchers. Outside, we look good. On the inside, we're rotten. And then the contrast of that, the other religious leaders were the Sadducees. Instead of adding to the word of God like the Pharisees did, they took away from the word of God. Well, we don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe in hell. We don't believe in... And they took away from the word of God, watered it down to make it more approachable. Make it more approachable. And they were culturally relevant and they just wanted to make it the way it was so that we go. And in both cases, however you did it, what was missing for 400 years was a relationship with the living God. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees what they've done to his word, which is alive and transforms mankind. And blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And they'd been feeding on the chaff, the tithes. They wanted the money. They wanted the notoriety. They wanted the political clout. The Sadducees were all about politics. They were all about politics. They only held to the first five books of the Bible. They would be considered, you know, progressive or, or libertine or libertarian. And I, you know, I don't want restraint. Here, they believed that restraint was everything, almost fascist. And you had these polarization points, and in the middle, God is saying, here I am. And John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was this just call-it-as-it-is kind of guy. He didn't dial it down. He wasn't tender. He was just rough. His predecessor, Elisha, was the mother man of Israel. He was real sweet and kind. Elijah was just calling it like he sees it. And he walks in, and he bursts on the scene after 400 years, and he declares without any warning... He just suddenly, in the spirit of Elijah, rugged character, dwelling in the wilderness. He's on the fringes of the nation, outside the limitations of established religion. He's not even going to the temple. He's out away from the church. He's just with the people, and the people are coming to him. Ah. You know why? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. In, in a dark room, a light is the center point. It shines even more powerfully that all would be drawn to it like moths to a light. And they're all drawn to him in the wilderness as his light is shining. And Jesus would say in Luke 7 about John's raiment, that it was a soft raiment. You came out looking for a soft raiment. He didn't have that. That belongs in palaces with kings, not to John. John came preaching his message, not in soft and silky raiment, but abrasive camel hair. And he was intense. He'd been raised with the Essenes out in the wilderness. The Essenes, if you go to Qumran, which is where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the oldest religious manuscripts on the face of the earth preserved at the lowest point on earth where all the, 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 the levels of, um, huh? Not sediment, atmosphere. Come on, I was just testing you. All the levels of the atmosphere so that the, the, the rays of the sun cannot deteriorate. And here they are preserved for thousands and thousands of years. A young boy who's shepherding his flock, one goes into a, a, um, a cave and to try to get the, the, the animal out, he throws a rock into the cave and he hears what sounds like a breaking of a clay pot. He goes in and finds these ancient manuscripts that are the oldest manuscripts on the face of the earth. And it's, and it's Isaiah. And it's ex exactly to the point accurate to what we hold today. Fascinating. Fascinating. 
And here in this area where these Essenes kept the scriptures, they, they had given up on, on the religiosity of the nation that had walked away from God and was more concerned with their budgets, their buildings, and their baptisms than they were with having a relationship with the living God. Influencing and transforming culture. They were a, they were a subculture. They weren't a counterculture. These Pharisees had come to a place where they were pietistic. We don't involve ourselves in politics. We don't do that because we soil our feet and it's dirty and politics is dirty. And everyone's looking and saying, well, the Pharisees are dirty too. And they would subject themselves to the other ruling nation, which was run by Rome. And they would just take whatever scraps that these governments would give as long as they could have their notoriety and think themselves bold behind these wooden boxes. And the the Pharisees had allowed their people to be led astray. The Sadducees tried to get along and dial it down. And the Essenes had moved out into the wilderness and there was John. He was raised with them. And John was in this, this rugged state, and he's crying out as one in the wilderness, and his, his diet was just like the word that he would share. It was, it was very simple and to the point. His gentle words didn't tickle the ears of his listeners. No, they weren't gentle words. They were heavy. Repent. Repent. Repent means to change. God, I agree. This alcohol's killing me. That's the first step. I'm powerless. I turn. I need your help. We think worship is music. It's not. Worship with the Syrophoenician woman who had the demon-possessed daughter in the Gospels, the Scripture says she worshiped the Lord with three words. Lord, help me. You just turn. Lord, help me. I'm powerless. And you turn and you embrace God and say, help me. Make straight the way of the Lord in my life. I agree with you that this is killing me. I agree with you that this is wrong. I agree with you that it has subjected me to bondage. I want to be free. I want to apply restraint in this area to experience the freedom in this area, to soar and to achieve excellence that you've called me to. And this was that declaration of need, straightforward declaration that needed repentance that John spoke of in the wilderness. These people were already members of the Jewish faith that he was speaking to. And baptism to a Jew was only for non-Jews that converted to Judaism. And they would come to be baptized to wash off this self-administered bath. They would would wash away their Gentile impurities. Not John. John said, Jews need to be baptized too. You're all dirty. And here comes John calling his own people to a baptism, unlike anything they'd ever seen. He's out in the wilderness baptizing him. And at that stage in the Jordan River, it's just silt. And you're being baptized in dirty water to be cleansed of God. And John warns them of uncertain times to come. He says of a wrath to come. Wrath. Wrath is judgment. He speaks of this wrath. And he speaks of repentance. He says, bear fruit in accordance with true repentance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. He's calling them to this. And he says that you claim to be children of Abraham, but that doesn't suffice to bring you into the kingdom of God. Listen, being raised in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. Right? Right? And, and I can't tell you how many drunks I've met that kind of, I was baptized by Chuck Smith. Well, how's that going for you? I was just Calvary in the tent days. So what? Well, that gives me legitimacy. I'll make sure not to light any matches around you. You'll explode. I, Chuck doesn't save. The tent didn't save. 
You didn't walk away and apply restraint. You can go through motions, but it's a repentance of the heart, a transformation. Baptism doesn't save you. But they're coming out in in, in true contrition saying, God, I want to turn from this. I want to apply restraint and embrace this freedom to walk with you and be what you've always intended me to be. There's a need for true repentance and amending in life. And this is what John was calling the people to. And he he showed this picture in Matthew 3.10 and Matthew 3.12. Judgment is indicated in two images of fire. There's a, a, the wind that's purging. It's also indicating hope. And then there's the wheat as well. But both wind and fire represent the Holy Spirit. And what happens here is you become a new creature in Christ. You become a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. Instead of being driven by your carnal nature and your lust to succeed and your, and your goals and you're driven, that's chaff. You, you come to a place where your, your spirit, God's spirit, is aligning you with his purposes that you excel in the direction God always intended you because he made you. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made. And he lays this out and he says that judgment and hope are centered in Jesus. And John says this later in the text, speaking of Jesus, I'm unworthy to remove his shoes, speaking of Jesus. John would say, like Chuck Smith would say, I'm not the one who saves. I'm not in charge of the hope, and I'm not in charge of the judgment. Jesus is. And he's come that we might have life, and he he cleanses us of all our unrighteousness if we would but believe on his name. And he pays the penalty for the sin. If we don't embrace the forgiving gift of God, grace, if we don't embrace that, then we face judgment. Really, what we're saying is, God, I can do this without salvation. It's what what Billy pointed out. God, I was making this whole thing work with my sobriety. He came to a place, I need Jesus. It was never me all along. Really, who keeps your heart beating and your lungs moving at night when you're sleeping? What part of yourself did you make, you self-made man or woman? There is, this is the great law of the universe. There is a God and you are not him. And in this, John lays it out. And he says there is judgment and there is hope. Hope for those who would call on the name of the Lord and judgment for those who wouldn't. Those who would hold on to the chaff and the scaly outside course issue of their life and thinking they can do this without God. I can do this in my self-righteousness. I can do this apart from Lord. That's a dangerous place to be. A nation for 400 years had done that. We don't need God's restraints that set men free. And so when John comes on the scene, the very first word out of his mouth when he comes on the scene is he uses this word repent. 400 years of silence, and he uses this word repent. Repent was the first word of Jesus' gospel in Matthew 4.14, which we'll see soon. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 6. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection, Luke 24. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. And repent was the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul through his ministry in Acts 26. See, repentance is change. Unless we leave our sin and our self-centered life, we can never embrace the kingdom of God. Turn from your wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. John saw this. John saw this. It's a profound picture of what John saw because here's a nation that when he quotes out of Isaiah 40, 
He was speaking to a people that were about to lose their country. And they'd be sent into exile into Babylon. And the last king in Isaiah's time, from where John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, the last king in Isaiah's time was Hezekiah. Manasseh came along, but Hezekiah said, listen, we don't need to repent. I got 15 more years to live. It's going to be good in my lifetime. It's all good. And he just put it on autopilot and skated through. I don't need to get involved in all this stuff. I don't need to contend with Sennacherib. I don't need to contend with all of the Assyrians. I don't need to contend in the public square. It's good for me. But the scripture says in Proverbs, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I can tell you why Angie's running. I can tell you why Sandy's running. I can tell you why I'm running. I can tell you why Billy's running. I want to leave an inheritance to my grandkids. I'm 52. I'm I'm on the tail end of this. I, I should put it on autopilot and relax. Get in the Winnebago and travel the country. But wait, that's what we've been doing. It's all about us. We embrace the chaff. The Winnebago is not going to heaven. The only thing going to heaven is people. We should be living for the future, for the nation, for the kids, for the grandkids, making a difference, not apathy, not fatalism, not neglect. And you step into this world and you make that difference. And as we do this, this is, this is what Hezekiah didn't do. He said, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need it. And Isaiah was burdened by it. And the people were led off into Babylon, and God spoke to them after their exile into Babylon. God spoke to them starting with chapter 40 and going to the end. And, and God said, from this point on, I want to speak comfort to a people who are going to be in exile. In Isaiah 40 Putting it in context, this is how it reads. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, verse 1 of chapter 40, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain shall be brought low. Every crooked place shall be made straight and every rough place made smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me give you an example. Billy Martin and I may be running for the same seat and we can contend with each other and fight each other and say mean things and caustic things about each other. But ultimately, this race is going to be over and we're both going to be in a rest home eating pudding. (laughs) And we're going to look back and say, what was I thinking, Billy? My greatest desire was to see you in heaven. And I made an enemy of you. There's no enemies, there's opportunities. We build community. We don't destroy it. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We strive to love one another as Christ has loved us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were wanting to kill him, he died for us. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If anyone can rile you up enough to make you angry at them and hate them, you are missing the point. It's not an us versus them mentality. And so with this, God says comfort. And and I think about this. We are, we are flowers that are in the field. They're there for a moment and they're gone. 
and it's, it's, they just blow away. When my son turned 13, I took him on a walk about Michael, and I was right in the middle of the campaign, and, and I remember for the gift, I gave him Ronald, my Ronald Reagan autograph. It says, best wishes, Robert McCoy, Ronald Reagan. And I told him a good name is like a precious fragrance. Better is a day of a man's death than the day of a man's birth, Ecclesiastes 7, 1. I said, you're living with, you have a name. We're only going to know if it's a good name at the end of your life. Live it well. Nobody names their kid Hitler anymore. And I gave him this autograph of Ronald Reagan. And I took him to a cemetery and I said, look, nobody comes here anymore. And the flowers by all the tombstones are fading. In about 100 years, no one will remember a soul in this place. It will be forgotten. But it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. We stand before God and give an accounting of our life. And how did we leave this place when, when we left? Did we leave an inheritance to our children's children and build a future for them? Did we establish life and make the crooked places straight? Did we stand for truth? Did we honor lives? Did we build community? If it was about amassing wealth, that stayed behind when you went into the ground. I said, Michael, a good name is a name that's focused on others. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. And you do the hard thing for the sake of others. And a man is a provider and a protector. And I remember he got it. And I gave him that gift of Ronald Reagan. And we came back here and the campaign offices were over there. And and it was at the fever pitch because his birthday is October 17th. The election was November 4th, I think, maybe 2nd. I mean, it was crunch time everybody's busy and everybody's on the phone and everybody's wearing a McCoy shirt and McCoy signs and full pictures of me and McCoy. <laughs> and we walk in and everybody cheers. And then I walk in, I said, it's my son's birthday. Oh. I said, and I gave him this, Ronald Reagan's autograph. Now, Ronald Reagan had been dead a while. And you know what happened? Everybody stopped calling and working and they came over to see I'm the candidate. My name is on everything. They didn't even look at me. They came over to see Ronald Reagan's autograph. A dead man's signature was more valuable than a living candidate's presence. You know why? It's a good name. People were moved by it. He made a difference. He could have put it on autopilot in his 70s and not fought for it. And I look and here we are. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You see, God's word is true. It's true. And it makes the crooked things straight. And it realigns our life with the purpose of God. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness is also a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Somebody goes, sin. Well, sin, again, real simple. Sin is not to be something insulted by If I give you the definition, you'll get it. Sin is an archer's term. There's the bullseye. The archer is aiming for the bullseye. The arrow goes where the arrow lands and where the bullseye is. It's an athletic term. Where the arrow lands and the bullseye is is called the sin distance. How far the arrow has fallen from perfection. Now, it's a lot easier to accept ourselves as sinners when we realize we're not perfect. If you struggle with that term, why are you here? Somebody drug me here. Okay, I'll be finished soon. And all the religions in the world is man trying to get to God by do's and don'ts, but Christianity is God bringing the bullseye to where man is and covering our sin. He paid the penalty, the wages of sin is death. He covers it, he pays for it. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, to change. 
God, we've been doing it wrong. Babies are to be protected. Families are to be preserved. Communities are to be built. Marriages are to be honored. Lives are to be touched. Truth is to be exalted. God, you're to be worshiped. That's what builds a community. And there's always going to be those that struggle. Truth is never tolerant of a lie, and a lie is never tolerant of the truth. There will be conflict. But we must endeavor for that truth. And that's what we have in our nation. Don't walk away from it. Embrace it. Engage in it. And as John laid this out, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight, that's what he's called us to. He's called us to stand firm upon these things. But it comes with this understanding, and this is what I close with. It comes with this understanding that we must first personally repent. We must turn from those things we're in bondage to and embrace the God who's come to set us free that we may soar to heights of excellence that we haven't known. What are you held to? What's destroying you? The relationship that's outside the will of God needs to stop. The addiction that you're struggling with, God will give you strength. Call on me, I'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. Your pride needs to be humbled in the sight of the Lord. This is repentance, both individually and nationally. You say, well, how do we have a national repentance? How does a nation change? I close with the words of Abraham Lincoln. And for those of you who say, a preacher shouldn't be in politics, nobody's preached more than Abraham Lincoln. I have never used anything like this in all the time in city, in city council. Imagine a president of the United States saying this. This was written on March 3rd, 1863. In the throes of the Civil War, hundreds of thousands of people were dead on a field of battle. He was struggling, wondering if he'd win re-election in 1846. The Union looked like it was going to be dissolved. It looked like the Confederate States and slavery would continue to, to be in force. Ultimately, 650,000 people would die in a field of battle. He'd get a bullet to the back of his head. And the Union would be preserved. And you tell me it's tough right now? Really? Abraham Lincoln understood what was necessary in those critical moments of bondage as a nation was fighting for the cry of all mankind for freedom and liberty. He knew what would bring it about, and he wrote these words. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God and all the affairs of men and of nations, has by resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, and yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. 
We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God, that, to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do, by this proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer, and I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes and keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. He wouldn't even live two years after that proclamation. He'd be dead on April 14th, 1865. He died on Good Friday. Nobody forgets Abraham Lincoln. That's a good name. If I had his signature, you'd line up after the service. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who could have ridden out the war in obscurity in a comfortable pulpit, decided to go back into Germany and face the evil of Hitler. And Hitler hated him so much that the last dictate of Hitler was to have him hung before he shot Ava Brown and shot himself in the bunker. We remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, complacency in the face of evil, or excuse me, apathy in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. There's no apathy or fatalism in the body of Christ. We are called to make straight the paths that are crooked. We're to stand firm. We're a voice crying in the wilderness. And regardless of what happens November 8th, nothing changes for the people of God. We leave this place better than we found it for our kids and our grandkids, period. And we do everything in our vested power to make that happen. And we stand for truth and we make it a point to love the opposition because they aren't the opposition, they're opportunities. And we do it in the love of Christ and we do it with a tenderness. And I was so touched. I didn't even know that about Billy. He's not my opponent. He's my brother and my friend. And that's what God's called us to.